Did you know that today was National Christian Heritage Sunday? I had no idea. No, not at all. Um, evidently, it uh, celebrates the very first Christian service in Australia. It's the anniversary of the very first Christian service. So how about that? Not a bad day, is it, uh, to celebrate that together? I wonder what the hopes and dreams were of the Christians and that first fleet. Would have been fearful, anxious and concerned. A bit like us today, a little fearful, anxious and concerned. We're certainly living in a time when people are increasingly hostile to Christians, aren't we? Christianity is increasingly ridiculed in the media and in our universities. And so when should you speak to others about Jesus and when should you not? Because this is the commission, isn't it? When do you hold your tongue? When do you speak? On one hand, we're told to be ready to share the gospel at any time. That beautiful uh, Rivergate memory verse, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, and, but do this with gentleness and respect. It's beautiful, isn't it? So that's the commission. Always be ready. Um, I was uh, in intensive care, <laughs> being prayed for by you guys, um, and an extraordinary, beautiful, intensive care nurse, physically extraordinarily beautiful, and somehow I'd learned a bit of her story. I chat them up, you see, when I'm conscious. And, and she was a bit of a free spirit. You know, she quite enjoyed recreational chemicals, if you know what I mean. And um, whenever she wanted a bit of entertainment, she went out and found sex with somebody or other. And I remember looking at this extraordinary beautiful girl and wondering what she thought of herself. And I remember waking up. In the early hours of the morning, and she was there sitting at the desk because you always have someone with you in intensive care. And I said, Did you know that you are more sacred than you can possibly conceive? And then I went back to sleep again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she forgot it. And, and so, what I did is, feel like I, I put something out there, like trailing a hook through, through the water. Would she bite or not? And it, she bit, actually. <laughs> she ended up wheeling me up to the ward when I got well enough to go on the ward and wheeled me into a courtyard and grilled me about Christianity. And it was just, just wonderful. And I think that's probably what we need to do. But there's sometimes it's wise to speak and just to, to put the hook out there. And at other times, it's wise to shut up. Um, I put a hook out there when I was speaking with Alexander Downer. That's just showing off. Uh, <laughs> By mistake, I was sitting at a table down at Normanville, and he was uh, occupying a huge table, him and his wife, and I said, do you mind if we occupy the other end? And we fell into a conversation, trail the hook. I talked, talked about um, people only truly being happy when they, know, when, they, when they know their meaning. And he didn't rise to it at all. So there we are. We just, we just left, left that one. Uh, and I'm reminded that the Bible does advise us there are times that we should keep silent. Jesus, with extraordinary bluntness, says, do not give dogs 
what is sacred. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying Alexander Downer is a dog. <laughs> I'm not at all. Do not throw pearls to pigs. Um, if you do, they may trample them under your feet, turn and tear you to pieces. And so, you know, if you speak at the wrong moment, you will inflame an argument and you'll be attacked. And some of you may have known all about that. So, again, I ask, when is the right time to speak about Jesus and when is it wise to shut up? Here's a story of a climactic event in Jesus' life. And I choose it because Jesus was both gave answers and also kept silent. So let's learn a little bit from that. If you want to follow it in Scripture, you can read about it um, in John chapter 18, verses 28, and we'll stray into verse uh, chapter 19. But if you've not got your Bibles with you, I'll talk you through it. We read in chapter, John chapter 18 that Jesus was arrested and taken to Annas. Uh, now, Annas was not the high priest, but he used to be. He, in fact, was high priest for 10 years until he was deposed by procurator um, Valerius Gratus. And he'd been a um, well-respected high priest. And even though he was no longer high priest, everyone considered him to still be one, <laughs> largely because he wielded extraordinary power through his five sons and his son-in-law, who happened to be Caiaphas, who was actually the official high priest. And after being interviewed by Annas, Annas sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas questions him about his teaching. And it is interesting because Caiaphas actually doesn't really want to know what Jesus was teaching. And so Jesus challenges him and he says, look, I, I preached and I taught every day in the temple. Everybody knows what I, I teach. So why are you asking me now? It was done open. It was done for everyone to see. Well, what happens is that one of the religious leaders there, servants, slaps Jesus across the face. And Jesus is quite courageous at this point. He actually challenges that behavior. And he says, what have I said or done that, that is wrong, that deserved that slap? And of course, the answer was, it was unanswerable. Absolutely unanswerable. And the irony was, here was a court that was meant to be pursuing justice, acting in an unjust way. And then Caiaphas then sends Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. <laughs> and Pilate doesn't want a thing to do with Jesus at all. He doesn't want to get involved in the Jesus affair. It was a Jewish religious matter. He had complete scorn for the Jews. He'd done, 
he'd, he'd raided the temple treasury for extra money to build an aqueduct. Uh, he, he, he'd shown complete disregard for Jewish custom, got into trouble a little bit from Caesar. So he was keeping his head down a little. And he didn't really want to get involved in this Jesus affair. But, of course, the Jewish leaders insisted that he did. Why? Because only the Romans had the authority to order a person to be executed. And so Pilate, Pilate reluctantly interrogates Jesus. And he says, in John chapter 8, verse 33, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's an absolutely loaded question. And, of course, the Jewish people, the leaders, had asked him to ask that question because anyone claiming to be king over Caesar instead of Caesar was likely to come to a sticky end. And so Jesus says, is that your question or did someone put you up to it? <laughs> and at this, Pilate gets really grumpy. He says, I don't know anything about your Jewish laws. It was your people who gave you to me handed you over to me. I don't understand what's going on. And then Pilate asks again, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus actually now recognizes that Pilate needs some assurance that he's not a political threat. And so Jesus now chooses to answer clearly. And he says, My kingdom is not of this world. I'm no threat to you at all. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. A clear, straightforward answer. But can you see the hook trailing the hook? Do you want to follow this up, mate? Do you want to follow this up? Pilate, now satisfied, he's now satisfied that Jesus presents no political threat, but he's intrigued by the hook. You are a king then. And Jesus pays out a little bit more fishing line. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You're right in saying that I'm a king. That's not very ambiguous, is it? I mean, that's pretty... <laughs> Pretty straightforward. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And, and for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Paying out a little bit more fishing line. It's a great technique. Jesus doesn't dump information. He says something calculated to intrigue Pilate. Pilate doesn't pick it up. Pilate doesn't pick it up. He reflects on the idea of truth and he says with all the worldly weariness that's within his soul, this political cynicism, he says, what is truth? 
And it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't really expect Jesus to answer it. It's almost said in despair. What is truth? And Pilate then tries to release Jesus. But the Jews press him to convict him because of his... (laughs) They decide to up the ante. They said, this bloke... Claim to be a king. Well, that didn't get them where they wanted Jesus. So then they go to the next step. This guy claimed to be God. <laughs> He's a boom, next level, you see. <laughs> well, this has rather the reverse effect on, on um, dear old Pontius. Because it puts the wind up him. Not least because we read in Matthew's gospel that uh, Pilate's wife had a had a dream about Jesus. Uh, And it was a very, very disturbing dream. And she warns her husband to have nothing to do with this man. Nothing to do with this man. So suddenly, you know, Pilate is there in in the headlights, caught, you know. (laughs) He's got his wife's warning here. He's got the Jews saying, if you don't commit this bloke, to be crucified, you are no friend of Caesar. And you're not in good favour with Caesar right now, mate. And now we come to that very, very sad part. Pilate starts to question Jesus. But Jesus knows that he knows everything that needs to be known. And all that he's doing now is trying to gather new information to justify which he knows what he's already going to do. And that he's going to order an innocent man to be crucified. And at that point, Jesus says nothing. And it absolutely amazes Pontius Pilate. So when he knows that there's nothing to be gained and that the simple truth of what he said either needs to be accepted or rejected, Jesus keeps quiet. So, my dear friends, let me ask you this. When do you speak and when do you keep silent? You don't speak when there's nothing to be gained. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7 says that there is a time to speak and a time to keep silent. Have the wisdom to know which to do and as I said Jesus said so brutally don't cast your pearls before swine however if someone has a sincere question and an open heart to the answer then speak uh, so over a month ago I was in I was having chemotherapy and I was attended by a gorgeous young man complete with man bun and slim tan Trousers, super cool, dark, swarthy, from Eastern Europe. And all the nurses in his wake, ah, and he knew it. And I'd never talked with him before. Uh, I normally, the the doctor attending me is called Bill. He's a wonderful Canadian, a lapsed Catholic, and we have marvellous theological discussions. And... um, 
Anyway, this beautiful doctor uh, came and talked to me. He was intrigued. He found out I was a pastor, you see. And so he told me that he was a, a card-carrying atheist. And I'm, I'm plugged into chemo. I'm feeling not great, to be honest. <laughs> Boom! And, he hits, and we're in this intense conversation for 90 minutes. It killed me. Absolutely killed me. Let me tell you. And he told me that he was, that he believed that pleasure was the main thing to live life for. And so I said, oh, that's interesting. He did 80% of the talking, by the way. He kind of protects himself, boom, uh, with words. And I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, let me stay with this guy. But he made the mistake, the classic mistake, of straying into my world of um, the scientific credibility of faith, you see. <laughs> dun, da, da, da. <laughs> you see. So Nick had a bit to say about that um, in the 20% of the conversation he was allowed to speak. But I heard in Alex's story, his name was Alex, a real seeking heart behind it all. This is what he dressed himself up with. He dressed himself up as a hedonist or an Epicurean. His father had deserted him when he was 18 months old. And he'd come to Australia as a refugee. And everything that he'd done, striving to be a doctor, I could see was, was really just establishing his identity in the face of the worst that life had given him. And by the end of the conversation, he confessed that he was no longer an atheist, but he was now an agnostic. So he was not quite sure about God. So we actually got somewhere, which was pretty good, wasn't it? Well, when I got home... I, I knew that I wasn't going to see him again because I was, my treatment was now going to be moved to Flinders. So Morag's now going to look after me uh, in Flinders. He doesn't know that yet. Um, and <laughs> are you still down there? Okay. Uh, I'm expecting a visit. Um, and so I decided to write Alex a letter as a father to Alex thanking him for the conversation and saying that as a father and as a pastor I would be looking for an opportunity for another conversation to, to challenge where he's going in life because I'm pretty sure that the path that he's taken does not lead to true fulfillment and I haven't had a reply yet um, uh, so that's again trailing, trailing a hook looking for those opportunities um, but it, it can be very difficult to find those opportunities because there's a lot of what I call willful atheism around the place. Now, the Apostle Paul writes there in Romans chapter 1, and he's pretty uncompromising. He says, look, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So it's basically saying, no one's got an excuse for not believing in God. All they've got to do is open their eyes and see the marvels of creation and let their brain do the rest of the work. I used to think that Paul was really pretty tough saying that, pretty mean. I mean, there's, surely there's a whole lot of well-meaning atheists who've got sincere uh, intellectual reasons and problems with Christianity. According to Paul, not really. Certainly the vast majority are willful atheists. In his book, 
Jesus among other gods, the Christian apologist and one of my heroes, Ravi Zacharias, makes the point that the problem posed by many atheists is not the absence of evidence, but the suppression of evidence. And I, in my world as an apologist, as someone who makes the case for God, scientific credibility for God, I see many atheists trot off intellectual excuses for not believing in God. But what they're actually doing is refusing to have an honest look at the evidence that does exist. In other words, they're doing exactly what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 18. They are suppressing the truth. And I'm finding that happening more and more these days. And that's the climate in which you and I are called to go and make disciples. So what do we do about this? What really frustrates me is that they make this claim that Christianity is not scientifically credible. And they actually say that because they are standing on the intellectually high ground of reason. And I respectfully want to suggest that you better come at me with something better than that the universe came from nothing as a result of nothing by a mechanism that has never been discovered, for which there is no precedent, and which undermines the laws of cause and effect which underpin all of science. Is that the best you can do? Do you enjoy me saying that? <laughs> yes, preach at me. And despite lack of scientific evidence, some have tried to claim that the universe can come from nothing. The American scientist Lawrence Krauss, a very strident atheist who loves to pour scorn on Christianity, written a book called A Universe from Nothing. It's a philosophically absurd book. I wonder if you can spot why. He says that it is possible for everything to come from nothing as a result of nothing, provided some parameters such as quantum fields and physical laws that govern them already exist. Did you spot the flaw in the argument? <laughs> it's not hard. It was Einstein who said scientists make very, very bad philosophers. <laughs> and here's a classic case of that. It his thesis really is as logically flawed as it sounds. And the inherent hubris of humankind means that many just simply don't want God to exist. And this is... This is because it challenges the very notion that they are the gods in charge of their own life. If you actually have to acknowledge another god, it challenges all of that. It challenges autonomy. It challenges God is an inconvenience to the lifestyle I want to follow. <laughs> see, that's the bit they don't say. Now, I have to say again that there are many morally good atheists who do some of them have legitimate intellectual problems with theism. And the issue of suffering is one such. And we need to be able to meet those questions very well. But let me just say that if you come to a conversation about God with a conviction that you don't even want God to exist, then you're not coming with an open mind of inquiry, are you? <laughs> My mind is closed. This is what I want to prove. 
Yes. The philosopher and mathematician Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist who gave great legs to atheism last century, was once asked what he would say to God when he had to explain why he didn't believe in him. <laughs> and Bertrand Russell said, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, not enough evidence. And he's ridiculed the idea of Christianity in a spectacularly unfair analogy. He said that since we can't prove that there isn't a tiny teapot, too small to see, circling the sun, we have to allow that such a teapot could be circling the sun. And this is the sort of reasoning Christians employ when they insist that we have to allow the, for the possibility of God because it can't be disproved. What do you think of that? Do you think he has a point? What do you... Now, Bertrand Russell may well have been a polymath of towering intelligence and intellect, but this does not prevent him from putting forward an argument that is crass and intellectually flawed. To state the banally obvious, a teapot, in case you didn't know, is a man-made object made for brewing and pouring tea. By its definition, by its origin, by its function, it is not an object in space. If, however, we look for evidence of God the Christians see in the cosmos, we see something completely different. We see a cosmos that is riddled with extraordinary, beautiful laws, amazing physics. The universe is put together essentially by four forces, the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force. Those four forces build the universe. Hope you're taking notes. Boys, I'm going to, be, I'm going to ask you afterwards. <laughs> so you're <clears throat> now, if the ratio of the strength of forces between the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force had varied by as much as one ten thousandth trillionth trillionth, trillionth, you would not have carbon-based life on this planet. Now, what are you going to do with that statistic? You're going to shrug your shoulders and simply say, we're here because we're here? The only thing that makes sense of that extraordinary order the fact that we can't, we scientists and mathematicians, we, we can't actually find authentic chaos even in chaotic systems, there are repeated patterns which we call strange attractors. What are you going to do with that? The only thing that explains that level of extraordinary order and beauty is intelligence. <coughs> the only thing that explains it is intelligence is in mind. And therefore, belief in God is scientifically reasonable. And I'm really sad that the drum kit is covered up here because I'd like a drum roll at that particular point. <laughs> not bad, not bad. The drums and I have a relationship with each other. I'm really sad to see the drum kit covered. 
For those who don't know, I used to play the drums very badly. And then Rivergate needed a drummer, and were in desperation, they occasionally let me play. But it was fairly execrable, let me assure you. So not everyone is looking for truth. It is a challenge to their lifestyle, to their autonomy. So not finding God is a highly desirable outcome for many. It gives them the freedom to do what they like. Unfortunately, it carries with it something that is highly toxic to humankind, and that is it comes with meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. And our young adults are now committing suicide in record numbers, despite living in an incredibly privileged country, because they lack no meaning. Hear the phrase, if life has no purpose, why bother working it out? And so people just reach for another Chardonnay or Café Latte and not think about these extraordinary issues of who they are and why they are. And the question that young people are crying out for more than any other is, do I have meaning? And society does not give them an answer to that. Be content with your iPhone and Twitter And of course, if society tells you that you can do what you like and you have no meaning, well, that recipe has been responsible for the worst abuses in history. If you have no meaning, if you're not sacred and you can do what you like, Auschwitz happens. Auschwitz happens. If you have no meaning, you can do what you like. And that is the fruit of it. So what's the evidence that Christianity is true? Let's bring this now to a conclusion. What evidence? I wonder what you'd say. What is the evidence? Well, there's both general evidence for the credibility of Christianity, which you can appeal to when speaking to others about Jesus. And there is specific evidence that relates to Jesus. Let's just quickly look at the general evidence that there is for the rationality of Christianity. First of all, it is scientifically rational. Unless you're going to come to me and say that everything comes from nothing as a result of nothing, you have to admit that Christianity, that there's a mind behind the universe, scientifically rational. Secondly, when authentic Christianity is practiced, that looks a lot like Jesus, it is absolutely morally insurpassable, unsurpassable, there is nothing better. Quite frankly, it is not hard to see scientific absurdity and moral folly in the world's religions. It's not hard to see it. You don't see that in Christianity. It is morally amazing. Thirdly, it is grounded in historical fact. This is a great strength of Christianity and a great weakness. Because if it can be proved that Jesus of history events did not happen archaeologically, you'd be in trouble. The whole thing would collapse in a pack of cards. But this has not been able to be proved. And in fact, we have writers like Josephus, the Jewish historian, writing 
about the existence of Jesus just a few years after he, he lived. And similarly, Tacitus, the Roman historian. And so it is scientifically grounded. It's not just a philosophy that someone dreamed up one day while sitting under a tree. It happened in history. <laughs> and thirdly, the track record, the existential nature of Christianity and its ability to blow your doors off and change your life and transform life, transforms individuals, transforms families, transforms towns, transforms nations. Nothing is able to transform communities like authentic Christianity. When the Welsh revival happened, transform the culture of the southern part of Wales, particularly. So that's the general evidence. Would you agree with that? Whoa. Whoa. I'm going to teach you this. Ready? Whoa. Whoa. Good. Now some specific stuff that relates to Jesus. And just check this out because so many people say, oh, yeah, Jesus was a nice guy. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. Well, maybe that's a little bit beyond being a nice guy. He claimed that he would judge the world. He claimed to raise people up to everlasting life. That was his claim. He claimed that to have seen him is to have seen God is. And even his enemies understood that he was claiming to be God. He claimed to have always existed. He accepted worship as God. His morality was faultless and he was without sin. He fulfilled prophecy written about him hundreds of years before he came. And the evidence that he overcame death is both unique and compelling. Does that sound to you like someone who's a little more than a nice guy? Yo. Ready? Whoa. Good. No other person in history has made such claims and done extraordinary things. These are things that you can know when you talk to people about Jesus. As I said before, frankly, it's just not difficult to see rational and moral flaws in other religions, but you don't see them in authentic Christianity. Many religions represent humankind's sincere attempt to reach God, but Christianity is different. Christianity is unique because it is the story of God reaching out to us. And that is the beauty of it. He came to us as Jesus to pay the price for our sins so that we would not disqualify ourselves from his holy presence. And he paid a dreadful price for that. So don't miss out on the eternity that God intended you to live. So what can we conclude? Three things we can do. First, Understand the times that we live in. Know what is going on in society. In other words, be like the men of Issachar. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, it says of the men of Issachar that they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 
Therefore, dear friends, understand the times and know what Christians should do in these times. Do not be ignorant. Do not hide in siege mentality, in religious huddles, walled off from the rest of your community. Secondly, be sure of what you believe and why. Uh, when I was the pastor of Rivergate, we used to practice writing our testimony. Three headings. Remember that? Three headings. Before I was a Christian, how I became a Christian, why I'm still a Christian, and no preaching allowed. It is a story. And no exaggeration. Okay? And know the gospel story of Jesus paying the price for our sin. Be sure of what you believe and why. And thirdly, be ready to speak to people about your faith. As 1 Peter 3.15 urges us, always be prepared to speak to people about your faith. And be wise enough to know when not to. What I would like to do now is to pray for you and release you from fear. Because we do live in an increasingly alien environment as Christians. And I want to release you from fear so that you are ready to easily and naturally troll those hooks through your life Engage people in conversations and with gentleness and respect to share the Christian gospel. You with me? Let's pray. Dear Father, it is an extraordinary privilege that you should invite us to share in your ministry of building your kingdom, of bringing people into your kingdom through your truth, your message, and through the power of your Holy Spirit. And that you should choose us, failing, fallible people, to be part of that scheme is amazing, Lord, but it terrifies us. And we live in fear of, of people scorning us and deriding us. Well, Lord, we want to say today, if that's what they do to us, we proudly wear that. We will not back away from that. But we ask, dear Lord, for the wisdom to be gentle and respectful, always. Always gentle and respectful. We ask, dear Lord, for the, that you would protect us by your wisdom so you know when to shut our mouths and when to open our mouths. But we want to say today, Lord, we are available to you and your Holy Spirit to speak your truth to people who need to hear it. We ask, dear Lord, that we would trail those hooks that we would follow up on conversations and that we would win people through the truth of what we say and the grace with which we say it. So Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you'd release us from all fear, that you'd release us from all ignorance, that we'll be ready to share your gospel and fulfill the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And we pray this together as your people in Jesus' name. And the team said? Amen. Yes. Amen.